Chapter Twenty of the Fortieth Door. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Fortieth Door by Mary Hastings Bradley. Chapter Twenty. Beyond the Door. Ryder had stood stock still with amazement when the girl began to scream. She had gone mad, he thought for an instant, in masculine bewilderment, and then her madness revealed its treacherous cunning, for she began crying wildly for help against an invader, an infidel, a dog of a Christian who had stolen into her rooms. She had chucked him to the lions, Ryder perceived. One furious flash of lightning jealousy and oriental anger had overthrown in that wild and lawless head every other design for him for which she had risked so much. He had scorned her, he had flouted her caprice, he had dared to refuse the languors of those dangerous eyes. The hurrying footsteps appeared to him the tread of a legion in action, and he had no desire to rush out upon the oncomers. He had, indeed, distinct doubts of his ruthless ability to pass that supple, clawing, incensed creature at the door. He whirled, and made a bolt for the window, striking at the fastened grill. He heard the snapping of wooden bolts and the splintering of wood, and out through the hole he climbed to a precipitous, headlong flight that fairly felt the clutching hands upon his ankle. He had meant to make a jump for it. A three-story plunge into the Nile appeared a gentle exercise compared to the alternative within the palace, but in the very act of releasing his hold he changed his mind. Quicker than he had ever moved before, in any vicissitude of his lithe and agile youth, he clambered up, not down, and crouching back from sight upon the jutting top of the window, he sent his coat, sailing violently through space. He dared not look over for its descent upon the water, for other heads were peering from below, and he could hear an excited outburst of speech that broke sharply off. Evidently they were hurrying down to the water-gate. Swiftly he utilized this misdirection for his own ends. The roofs, that was the refuge to make for, flat, long-reaching roofs, from which one could climb off onto a wall or a palm or a side street. He had only a story to ascend, and he made it in record time, fearful that the searchers whom he heard now launching a boat below would turn their eyes skywards. But he gained the top without an outcry being raised, and found himself upon the roof where the ladies of the harem took their air, unseen of any, save the blind eyes of the musin in the sultan mosque upon the hill. There were the divans and a little tabaret or two, and a framework where an awning could be raised against the sun. There was also a trap-door. And here, tempestuously, he changed his mind again. He abandoned the goal of outer walls and chances of escape. He wrenched violently at that trap-door. It was bolted, but the bolt was an ancient one, and gave at his furious exertions, letting him down into a narrow spiral staircase between walls. Down he plunged in haste, before some confused searcher should dash up. It was no place to meet an opposing force, nor was the corridor in which he found himself much better. It was black and baffling as a labyrinth, with unexpected turnings, and he kept gingerly close to the wall, with one hand clutching a bit of iron which he had taken into his possession and his pocket when Aziza had led him out of the underground walls, the very bit of pointed iron, it was, with which the volatile creature had effected his rescue. He considered it an invaluable souvenir, and twice, in his nervous apprehension, he almost brought it down upon shadows. Direction he judged vaguely by the screaming which was still going on at a tremendous rate. Evidently the girl had gone off into genuine hysterics, or else she had determined not to leave her agitation at the intrusion in any manner of question. No doubt the outcries were a relief to her mingled emotions. 
remorse at her impetuosity, and chagrin at her thwarted plans, might conceivably be now among those emotions, and since the vicinity of those shrieks must be a gathering-place to be avoided by him, he stole on, down the upper hall, and finding a stair, he went down for two continuous flights. Amy's rooms, he knew, had been upon the water, and recalling the general direction of those two lighted windows that he had seen so recently from without, his excavator's instinct led him on. Once he saw the flitting figure of a turbaned woman in time to draw back into a heaven-sent niche, and again he flattened into a soundless shadow against the wall, as two young serving-girls ran by on slippered feet, their ankles tinkling, chattering to each other in delighted excitement. And then the stealthy opening of a door. It was the very door by which Yusuf had precipitated himself upon the struggle at the supper-table some age-long hours ago gave him a glimpse into the far glooms of the reception-room, where its long side of mashrubier windows revealed now between its fretwork tiny chinks of a paling sky. He could make out the dark-draped marriage-throne and the pallor of the disordered cloth upon the abandoned table below, and behind the table the dark draperies of the remaining portieres before the doorway into the boudoir where he had hidden himself, and into which he had last seen Amy thrust. At the other end of the great room were the entrance stairs to the harem, and there, he imagined, a watchman was stationed, or else stout bolts and bars were guarding the situation. There remained an arched doorway into other formal rooms, through which he had seen Amy and the guests disappear for the wedding supper, and that way led, he surmised, down into the service quarters. A sorry choice of exits! He could form no plan in advance, but trust blindly to the amazing chances of adventure, and first, before he rushed for escape, there was Amy to find. Yet, for all the mad hazard of the situation, he was elated with life. He felt as if he had never fully lived until now, when every breath was informed with the sharp prescience of danger. He was at once cool and exultant, wary yet reckless, with the joyous recklessness of utter desperation. With cat-like care he surveyed the drawing-room. It appeared deserted, but as he watched his tense nerves could see the shadows forming, taking furtive, crouching shape, and then dissolving harmlessly into a rug, a chair, or a stirring drapery. His eyes grown used to the dimness, he identified the mantle upon the floor in which he had come, and which he had extended to Amy in that brief moment of fatuous triumph, and beyond it, across a chair, was the portiere which the black had torn down from the doorway to wrap about Ryder's helpless form as he had carried him down to living death. That mantle, he thought, might yet be useful and he stole forward and recovered it, but as he straightened, another shadow darted out from the boudoir door, and silhouetted for an instant against the lighted room, he saw a figure in a long, swinging military cloak. Discovery was inevitable, and Ryder made a swift plunge to take the cloaked figure by surprise, but even as one hand shot out and gripped the throat, while the other held his threatening iron aloft, his clutch relaxed, his arm fell nervelessly at his side for from the figure had come the broken gasp of a soft voice, and the face upturned to his was a pale oval under dark, disordered hair. "'Amy!' he breathed in exultant, still half-incredulous joy. "'Amy, did I hurt you?' "'Oh, no, no!' came Amy's shaken voice. "'Oh, you are safe!' He felt her trembling in his clasp, and he swept her close to him. For one breathless instant they clung together, in a sharp, passionate gladness, which blurred every sense of dread or danger. They were safe. They were together, and for the moment it was enough. Every obstacle was surmounted, every terror conquered. 
They clung, obliviously, like children, her pale face against his shoulder, her hair brushing his lips, her wild heartbeats throbbing against his own. Then the girl, remembering, lifted her head. "'Quick, we must go,' she whispered. "'For there I made a fire.' He followed her frightened, backward glance at the boudoir door, and suddenly saw its cracks and keyhole, strangely radiant with light. "'He left me to go to those screams,' she was saying rapidly. "'I tried to run that way, and found that woman coming back, and I told her to wait in her own room, and I slipped back in there. And suddenly it came to me to thrust the candle about. I thought I would run out, and if I met anyone I would call fire, and say the general was burning, and perhaps in the confusion—' The terrible desperation of her both stirred and wrung him. She was so little, so helpless, so trembling in his clasp, so made for love and tenderness, and to think of her in such fear and horror that she went thrusting reckless candles into her hangings, setting a palace on fire in the blind fury for escape. To such work had this night brought her, this night, and three men, for he, and the craven Tufik, and the fanatic Bey, were all linked in this night's work. Yes, and another man, and he thought swiftly, in a lightning flash of wonder, how little that Paul Delcasse had known, when he set his eager face toward the old world, with his wife and baby with him, that he was setting his feet into such a web, that his wife would die languishing in a pasha's harem, and his little daughter would one night be flying in mad terror from the cruel beast the weak pasha had sold her to. And how little, for that matter, he had known, when he had set his own face toward those same sands, what secrets he would discover there, and what forbidden ways his heart would know. These thoughts all went through him like one thought, in some clear, remote background of his mind, while he was swiftly drawing on the military cloak she gave him, and wrapping her in the black mantle. There was a veil on the mantle's hood that she could fling across her face when she wished, but Ryder had no fez to complete the deceptive outline of his masquerade. He must trust to the dark and to the concealment of the high military collar of the cloak. "'Do you know a way?' he whispered, and at her shaken head. "'The water-gate,' he said, thinking swiftly. There would be a crowd now about the gate, but if they could only manage to gain those cellars and hide somewhere, they could steal out later upon that waterman. It seemed the most feasible of all the desperate plans. The roofs might be a trap. The harem entrance led into a garden, and the garden was guarded by an impassable wall. But if he could only get to the river, he knew that he was a strong enough swimmer to save Amy, or he might even terrorize the watchman into furnishing a boat. She did not question, but guided him swiftly through the arch that led down into the banqueting hall. Twice that day she had gone down those stairs, once in her bridal state, her eyes shining, her cheeks glowing, with the wild joy of Ryder's arrival and dreams of escape. And again, scarcely an hour gone by, she had descended them, tense and desperate, her revolver at the general's head, seeking vainly Ryder's rescue. And now, a third time, a guilty, reckless fugitive in the night, she stole down those stairs into the many-columned hall where she had been feted in state among her guests. Here her only knowledge was of the stone corridor and the locked door through which the bay had led her, but Ryder knew the way that Aziza had brought him, and he turned cautiously towards those wide, curving stairs. Keeping Amy a few steps behind him, he went down the soft carpet and peered out at the bottom towards the water-gate. He saw no bars, the gate was open, and against the pale square of the water were the black silhouettes of the general and the gateman, both leaning out at some splashing in the river. He knew a boy's reckless impulse to shove them both in. It was an unholy thought his better judgment rejected, 
unless driven to it, yet some prankish element in his roused recklessness would not have deplored the necessity. If they looked about! But they did not stir, as, with Amy's cold hand in his, he made the tiptoe descent, and slipped softly about the corner of the steps. Then, instead of going on down the hall to some hiding-place in the ruins, he took a suddenly revealed, sharper turn into a narrow passage just beyond the stairs. It might lead to another gate, some service entrance, perhaps. It ran so straight and direct between its walls. Intuitively that excavator's sense of his defined the direction. They were going parallel with the river, although a little way back from the water-wall, and in the direction of the men's part of the palace, the Selimlik. He recalled the Selimlik vaguely as an irregular mass of buildings, and though the formal entrance was of course through the garden from the avenue, there was a narrow side street or lane leading back to the water's edge between this part of the palace and the nest building, and very likely there was some entrance on that lane. Bitterly he blamed himself for his lack of complete inspection that morning. To be sure, he had told himself then, as he strolled about the high garden walls and peered down the narrow lane on one side of the Nile backwaters, that he didn't need a map of the place for his arrival at an afternoon reception. He was simply going in and out, and clothes and speech were his only real concern. He had even said to himself that he might not reveal himself to Amy, if she did not discover him. He wanted merely to see her again, and be sure that she understood her own history. He had no notion of attempting any further relations with her, any resumption of their forbidden and dangerous acquaintance. And it was true that that had been the defiant and protesting surface of his thoughts, but deep within himself there had always been that hot hidden spark, ready to kindle to a flame at her word and with it the unowned secret longing that she would speak the word. And when she had called on him for help, when the trembling appeal had sprung past her stricken pride, and he had seen the terror in her soft child's eyes, then the spark had struck its conflagration. He had become nothing but a hot, headstrong fury of devotion. And he said to himself now that he might have known it was going to happen, and that if he had not been so concerned that morning about saving his face and preserving this fiction of indifference, he would know a little more about the labyrinth they were poking about in, the little more that tips the scale between safety and destruction. But he did not know, and blind chance was his only goddess. The passage had brought him to a wall and a narrow stairs, while another passage led off to the right, apparently to the forward regions of the place. He took the stairs. He had had enough of the underground regions when they did not lean to water gates, and the stairs promised novelty, at least. He wished he knew more about Turkish palaces. He supposed they had a fairly consistent ground-plan, but beyond a few main features of inner courts and halls, he was culpably ignorant of their intentions. If it were an early Egyptian tomb or temple now, but then, perhaps, the Turks were more indefinite in their building and rebuilding. At the head of the stairs a door stood half ajar. Through the crack he strained his eyes, but his anxious glance met only the darkness of utter night. Not a gleam of light and not a sound, except the far, hollow stamping of some stabled horse. Slowly he pushed the door open, and he and Amy slipped within. The place, whatever it was, appeared deserted, a dark, bare, backstairs region, for he stumbled over a bucket, from which to the right he could just discern a hall leading into the forward part of the palace, wanely lighted some distance on, with the pale flicker of an old ceiling lamp. They seemed to be at the end of the hall, and the darker shadows in the walls about them appeared to be a number of doors, closed, so his groping hands informed him. 
Oh, for his excavator's steady light, or a pocket-flash! Oh, for a light of any kind, even a temporary match! But he dared not risk the scratch, for now he caught the thud of footfalls overhead, heavy footfalls, and there might be stairs unexpectedly close at hand. He turned to Amy, but the girl shook her head helplessly, and hesitant and dashed, for all their young confidence, they wavered a moment, hand in hand in the dark, fearful of what a rash move might bring upon them. And in the beating stillness Ryder became conscious that the muffled, monotonous stamping of a horse is a gloomy, disheartening thing in the night, and that footsteps overhead are of all noises the most nervous and unsettling. What was behind those doors? Not a spark of light came from them. That was one comfort. The rooms, kitchen, service, storerooms, or whatever they were, appeared in the same blackness and oblivion. But any door might open on a roomful of sleeping gardeners and grooms. Life, and more than life, hung on the blind goddess. It was only an instant that they hesitated there, yet it appeared an eternity of indecision. Then nearer footsteps sounded, coming down that hall. No more wavering of the scales. Ryder turned to the door at his left, at the very end of the wall, beyond which came that far stamping, and wrenched it open, closing it swiftly behind him. He saw a light now, a mild yellow ray through an open door ahead, that vaguely illumined the strange old vehicles of the palace, and the stables were beyond. Someone else was beyond, too, in the stables, for that very instant he saw a black horse backed restively into sight, its tossing head evading the hands that were trying to bridle it. "'The fortieth door,' said Ryder to himself, with an involuntary thrust of humour. "'The door of the horse, the door of forbidden daring.' He knew now the vague associations that had stirred in him as he had stared blindly about that place of doors, but he had opened so many forbidden doors of late that this last was welcome as the supreme test. And nothing in the world could have been more welcome than a horse, a horse with a way out behind it. "'Stay back,' he said under his breath to Amy, and clasping his bit of iron he moved toward the door. He could see the attendant now, who was finishing his bridling, and it was Yusuf, the eunuch, so busy gentling and soothing the horse, that he cast only one glance in the direction of the sounds he heard, and that one glance misled him in its glimpse of the general's cloak. "'By your favour, but an instant,' he called out, and he is ready. "'Stand aside,' said Ryder very clearly, emerging from the shadows at the horse's heels. "'Out of the way with you. The horse is for me.' A moment Yusuf gaped. Then he dropped the bridle, and his hand went swiftly to the knife-hilt in his belt. "'Fool!' said Ryder contemptuously. "'Would you tempt fate? Do you think I am such that your knife could harm me? Must I prove to you again that walls are nothings, that I but let myself be taken to prove my powers?' Ethiopians are superstitious, and Yusuf knew that his brick and mortar had been strong. Yet they have great trust in a crooked, short-bladed knife, and Yusuf did not relax his hold upon his, and for all that Ryder could see, there was no hesitation in the grinning ferocity of his black face. Yet his spring was an instant delayed, and in that instant Ryder spoke again. "'Look, now, at the wall behind you,' he said quickly. Yusuf looked, and as he turned his bullet head, Ryder jumped close and brought his iron down upon it, with a sickening force he thought scarcely short of murder. To his amazement the black did not fall, but staggered only, and Ryder had need to send the knife spinning from his grasp, and strike again before the eunuch's knees sagged and his huge bulk sank at Ryder's feet. This time Ryder took no chance with a shammed unconsciousness. He snatched down bits of leather from the wall, 
and bound the man's hands and feet in tight security, and seeing that he was breathing, although heavily, he thrust a gagging handkerchief into his mouth. Then he dragged the heavy body towards a pile of hay he saw in a vacant stall, and concealed it effectively, but not too smotheringly, although Yusuf, he felt, would be no grievous loss to society. Vaguely in the back of his consciousness he had been aware of the excited plunge of the horse, and then of a low, soothing murmur of speech, and now he turned to find Amy holding the bridle and stroking the quivering creature with gentle, fearless hands. "'Is he dead?' she asked quietly of the eunuch. "'Stunned,' said Ryder, meaning reassurement, and was startled by the passion of her cry. "'Oh, I could kill them all, all!' "'I will, if they try to stop us,' he promised grimly, forgetful of that oath to Aziza. Hastily he glanced about the stalls. There was no other horse there, only a pair of mild-eyed donkeys, and though there might conceivably be other horses behind other doors, there was no instant to spare in search. This luck was too prodigious to risk. The door to the street had already been unbolted, and now he threw it back, with a quick look into the dark emptiness of the narrow side street, and then, with a tight hold of the reins, he swung himself into the saddle, and Amy up into his arms, her head on his shoulder, her arms clasping him. It was a huge Bedouin saddle, with high arched back and curved pummel, and the slender pair no more than filled it, making apparently no weight at all for the spirited beast which tore out of the stalls at the charging gallop beloved of eastern horsemen. For a moment Ryder felt wildly that he might meet the fate of the rash youth in his patron's story. He had never ridden a horse like this, which, like all high-mettled Arabs, resented the authority of any but his master, and though a good horseman, Ryder had all he could do to keep his seat and Amy in his arms. Around the corner of the lane the horse went racing, and down the dark, lebbock-lined avenue his flying feet struck back their sparks of fire. Across an open square he plunged, while irate camels screamed at him, and a harsh voice shouted back loud curses. It seemed to Ryder that other voices joined in, that there was a pursuit, an outcry, and then they were out upon an open road, wildly galloping, like a mad highwayman under a pale morning sky. End of chapter 20「twenty one of the fortieth door this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org the fortieth door by mary hastings bradley chapter twenty one miss jeffreys makes a call that morning miss jeffreys ate two eggs she ate them successively with increasing deliberation and afterwards she lingered interminably over her toast and marmalade. Still Ryder made no appearance, and since the Arab waiter had informed her that he had not yet breakfasted, she concluded that he was not at the hotel, but had spent the night with some friend of his, probably that Andrew McLean, to whom he was always running off. Nor was he in to luncheon. That was rank extravagance because he was paying at pension rates. His extravagance, however, was no affair of hers. Neither, she informed herself frigidly, was his appearance or his non-appearance. It was only rather dull of Jack to lose so many, well, opportunities. She was not going to be in Cairo forever. Not much longer, in fact. There were adages about gathering rosebuds while ye may, and making hay while the sun shone, that Jack Ryder would do well to observe. Other men did, reflected Jinny Jeffreys, with a proud lift of her ruddy head. Only somehow the other men— 
Well, Jack was provokingly attractive. Only, of course, if he was going to rely upon his attraction, and not upon his attentions. Deliberately Miss Jeffrey smiled upon a stalwart tourist from New York, and promised her society for a foursome at bridge in the hotel lounge that evening. Later, when Jack still failed to materialize and behold her inaccessibility, the exhibition seemed hardly to have been worth while. And there were difficulties getting rid of the New Yorker the next day. He had ideas about excursions. It was during the forenoon of the next day that the first twinge of genuine worry shot across the sustained resentment which she was pleased to call her complete indifference. She recalled the vigour of Ryder's warnings about mentioning his adventure, and the grave dangers of disclosure, and she began to wonder. She wished, rather, that he had gone safely out of the house before she went away. Of course nothing could happen. He had done nothing to give himself away. He was simply a veiled shadow, moving humbly as befitted a lowly stranger among the high and hospitable surroundings. But still, it would have been better if he had gone. Those turbaned women had looked queerly at them when they were talking so long in the window. Perhaps it was not simply at the intimacy between a young American and a veiled Oriental. Perhaps their voices had been unguarded, or Jack's tones had awakened suspicion. Perhaps he had given himself away in his long talk with the bride. She remembered a Frenchwoman who had come to interrupt that talk, who had looked rather sharply at Jack, and that dreadful eunuch was always staring. She thought of a great many things now, more and more things, every minute. And still she told herself that she was absurd, that Jack would be the first to ridicule her alarm. He was probably enjoying himself, staying on with his friends, forgetting all about herself. Still, his room at the hotel had not been slept in for two nights now, nor had he called at the hotel, and he certainly didn't have an extensive supply of clothes and linen upon him, beneath the mantel. Particularly she remembered that he had exhibited some funny black tennis shoes, which he had thought would go appropriately with a woman's robes. Absurd to think of him as spending two days in tennis shoes, and absurd to say that he would go to the shops and buy more when he had plenty of footgear in his hotel room. Unless he wore McLean's. She had always regarded the unknown McLean as a most unnecessary absorbent of Jack Ryder's time and attention, and now that view was deeply reinforced. By noon she decided to do something. She would telephone that Andrew McLean and see if Jack had been there. The Agricultural Bank, that was the place. An obliging hotel clerk—clerks were always obliging to Miss Jeffreys—gave her the number, and she slipped into the booth, feeling a ridiculous amount of excitement and suspense. She had never telephoned in Cairo, only been telephoned too, and she was not prepared for the fact that the telephone company was French. At the phone girl's numero? Quel numéro, s'il vous plaît? Jinny hastily choked back the English response and clutched violently at French numerals. Huit cent no, quatre vingt, un moment, she demanded desperately, and hanging up the receiver, sat down to write out her number in French correctly. And then she got the bank, and still clinging to her French, she requested to speak to Monsieur McLean, and was informed that it was Monsieur McLean himself. Je suis oh how absurd of course you speak english she exclaimed this french telephone upset me i wanted to speak to mr ryder if he is there or else leave a message for him if you know when he will come in ryder there was a faint intonation of surprise in the voice i have no idea really when he'll be in said mclean but you may leave the message if you like hasn't he haven't you seen him for some time 
stammered Jinny, feeling that McLean must be taking her for a pursuing adventuress. Well, not for some time. Her heart sank. Not, not for two days? It might be that, said the Scotchman cautiously. Two days, forty-eight hours, almost, since she had left him in that harem, and McLean had not seen him. Of course there might be other friends who had, and McLean might know of them. I'm afraid I'll have to see you, she said desperately. It's rather important about Jack Ryder, and if I could just talk with you a minute this afternoon— I have no appointment for three-fifteen, McLean told her concisely. Evidently he expected her to call at the bank. He was used to being called on. Shall I come? she began. I can see you at three-fifteen, McLean reassured her, and she repeated, three-fifteen, with an odd vibration in her voice. I wonder, she murmured, if I came at three-ten or three-twenty? But she didn't. She was humorously careful to make it exactly a quarter past the hour when she left her cab before McLean's official-looking residence and stepped into the tiled entrance. She had no very clear notion of Andrew McLean, except that he was, as Jack had said, scotch, single, and skeptical, that he was Jack's intimate friend and an official sort of banker. The word banker had unconsciously prepared her for stout dignity and middle age. She was not at all prepared for the lean, sandy-haired, rather abrupt young man who came forward from the depths of the gratefully cool reception-room, and after a nervous hand-clasp waved her to a chair. He was still holding her card, and as he glanced covertly at it she recalled that she had given him no name over the telephone, and that he must have known her only by the time of her appointment. Decidedly she must have made an odd impression. Well, he could see for himself now, she thought, a trifle defiantly. Certainly he was taking stock of her out of those shrewd, swift, grey eyes of his. He could see that she was, well, certainly a nice girl. As a matter of fact, McLean could see that she was considerably more, rather disconcertingly more. It was not often that such white-clad apparitions, piquant of face and coppery of hair, teased the eyes in his receiving-room. "'You wanted to see me?' he offered, mechanically. "'Perhaps you have heard Jack Ryder speak of me, of Jinny Jeffries?' began the girl, determined to put the affair on a sound social footing as soon as possible. McLean considered, and in honesty shook his head. He very seldom mentioned young ladies. Oh! Jinny tried not to appear dashed. We are very old friends in America, and, of course, I've seen a good deal of him since I've been in Cairo. In fact, he is stopping now at the same hotel with us, with my aunt and uncle and myself. McLean smiled. He said it was a tooth, he mentioned dryly. In Jinny's eyes a little flicker answered him but her words were ingenious. Oh, of course he has been having a time with the dentist. That's why he couldn't return to his camp. What I meant was that at the hotel we have been seeing him every day until—he has just disappeared since day before yesterday, and we—that is, I—am very much concerned about it. Disappeared? You mean he— Just disappeared, that's all. He hasn't been at the hotel. He hasn't been anywhere that I know of, and I haven't heard a word from him. So I telephoned you, and then I found he hadn't been here. McLean looked off into space. Eh, well, he'll turn up, he said comfortingly. Jack's erratic, you may say, in his comings and goings. He means nothing by it. I've known him to do the same to me. At any time now, you're likely to hear. Miss Jeffreys sat up a little straighter, and her cheeks burned with brighter warmth. It isn't just that I want to see him, Mr. McLean. She took quietly distinct pains to explain. It's because I am anxious. 
not a need not a need in the world jack knows his way about he may have been called back to the diggings you know if i dug up some bit of porcelain there or a few grains of corn the boy would forget the sun was shining perhaps his caller's burnished hair had shaped that thought jack knows his way about he repeated encouragingly as one who demolishes the absurd fears of women and children you don't quite understand jinny's tones were silken smooth you see i left him in rather unusual circumstances it was a place where he had no business in the world to be at mclean's unguardedly startled gaze her humour overtook her wrath oh it was quite all right for me she replied mischievously to that look only not for him you see he was masquerading again thought mclean involuntarily lord what a hand for the lassies that lad was and he had thought him such an aloof one masquerading as a woman so he could take me to a reception jinny began to falter just putting the escapade into words portrayed its less commendable features it was a woman's reception she began again at a turkish house a marriage reception she had certainly secured mclean's whole-hearted attention a marriage reception a turkish marriage reception he said very sharply and amazedly as his caller continued to pause do you mean to say that jack ryder went into a turkish house dressed as a woman there was a pronounced angularity of feature about the young scotchman which now took on a chiselled sternness swiftly jinny interposed oh you mustn't blame him mr mclean you see i wanted very much to go to a turkish reception and i didn't have the courage to go alone or drag some other tourist as inexperienced as myself and so jack why there didn't seem any harm in his dressing up just for fun you know he put on a turkish mantle and a veil up to his eyes and he was sure he'd never be found out i ought not to have let him i know it was my fault she looked so flushed and innocent and distressed that mclean's chivalry rose swiftly to her need indeed you mustn't blame yourself miss miss jeffreys you don't know egypt and jack does he knew that if he had been discovered there would have been no help for him and no questions asked afterwards and it might have been very dangerous for you the blame is just his now he said decisively yet not without a certain weak-kneed sympathy with the culprit for if the girl had looked like this he could see that she would be a difficult little piece to withstand though any man with an ounce of sense in his head would have behaved as a responsible protector and not as a reckless schoolboy what happened he said quickly oh nothing happened nothing that i know of we got along very well i thought although now i remember that some people did stare but i wasn't worried at the time i thought it was just because i was an american and he was apparently a turkish woman but there was no reason why an american might not get a turkish woman to act as a guide was there and then jack told me to go home first he said it would be simpler that way and that he would slip over to some friends or to some safe place and take his disguise off he wore a grey suit beneath it and the only funny thing was some black tennis shoes so i left him and he hasn't been back since she added as mclean was silent he told me that he had some engagement for that evening so i did not begin to worry until the next day now just how long ago was this two days ago day before yesterday afternoon she looked anxiously at mclean's face and took alarm at his careful absence of expression oh mr mclean do you think he brushed that aside and where was it this reception at an old palace forever away on the edge of the city i don't remember the street we drove and i had the cab wait 
but it belonged to a Turkish general, Hamdi Bey, she brought out triumphantly. General Hamdi Bey. McLean did not correct her idea of the title. His expression was more carefully noncommittal than ever, while behind its quiet guard his thoughts were breaking out like a revolution. Hamdi Bey, a wedding reception, the daughter of Tufik Pasha. In the secret depths of his soul he uttered profane and troubled words. That French girl again. Sir Ryder had not forgotten that affair, although he had kept silent about it of late. He had bided his time and taken that rash means of seeing the girl again, and he had involved this unknowing young American in a risk of scandal, and deceived her into believing herself responsible for this caprice, while all the time she had been a mere cloak, and it had been his own diabolical desire. Miss Jeffreys was surprised to see a sudden sorry softness dawn in the young man's look upon her, and she was surprised, too, at his next question. "'I wonder now, if you were the young lady who took him to a masquerade ball some time ago?' Lightly she acknowledged it. "'You'll think I'm always taking him to things,' she said brightly, but McLean's troubled gaze did not quicken with a smile. He was experiencing a vast compassion. She was so innocent, so unconscious of the quicksands about her. Probably she had never heard a breath of that first adventure. And it was this fair Christian creature whom Jack Ryder had abandoned for a veiled girl from a Turk's harem. McLean filled with cold, antagonistic wonder. He forgot the lovely image of the French miniature, and remembering Tufik's rounded eyes and olive features, he thought of the veiled girl, most illogically, for he knew that Tufik was not her father, as some bold-eyed, warm-skinned image of base allure. Sorrowfully he shook his head over his friend. He determined to protect him and to protect this girl's innocence of his behavior. He would help her to save him. She could do it yet, if only she did not learn the truth and turn from him. If ever she had been able to make Jack go to a masquerade, that cursed masquerade, she could work other, more beneficent miracles. So now he asked, very cautiously, his mind on divided paths, "'Do you say there was nothing to draw suspicion?' He did not talk to any one, the guests, or the bride? Oh, yes, he did talk to the bride, said Miss Jeffreys, with such utter unconsciousness that McLean's heart hardened against the renegade. He talked quite a while to her, she said. Did you notice anything? Oh, I couldn't hear what he said. He was the last in line, and he stayed for some time. He said afterward that it was all right. She was very nice to him, said Jinny earnestly, producing every scrap of incident for McLean's judgment. She showed him some of her presents, something about her neck. In mid-speech, McLean changed a startled God to good. She wasn't suspicious then, he said weakly. Not as far as I could see. Oh, nothing seemed to be wrong. But I did feel uneasy until I got away, and then Jack hasn't come back. Again she looked at the young Scotchman for confirmation of her fear, and again she saw that careful, expressionless calm. It's no need for alarm he told her slowly, since nothing went wrong. I see no reason why Jack couldn't have walked out of that reception, if we only knew where he was going later. Yes, something might have happened later, Jinny took up. I thought of that. He might have wanted some more fun and felt more reckless. Oh, I am worried, she confessed, her gray eyes very round and childlike. And if anything had happened, she would always blame herself, thought McLean, ironically. The unthinking deviltry of the young scoundrel— when he found him, he'd have a few things to say. "'That's why I came to you,' Jinny went on. "'I hesitated, for he had warned me so against telling anyone. But no one else knows. And no one must know. 
McLean assured her crisply. "'I dare say. It's a mare's nest, and Jack will be found safe and sound at his diggings, or off on a lark with some friend or other. But it's well to make sure, and ye did quite right in coming to me.' Jinny thought she had done quite right, too. There was a satisfying strength about McLean. She resented a trifle his masculine way of trying to keep the dark side from her. She was not greatly misled by that untroubled look of his, and yet she was unconsciously reassured by it. And although he refused to be stampeded by alarm, he was not incredulous of it, for his manner was frankly grave. "'I'll send out at once,' he said decisively, "'and see if I can pick up any gossip of that reception. I've a very clever clerk with brothers in the bazaars, who's a perfect wireless for information. He has told me the night before a man was to be murdered.' He paused, reflecting that that was not a happy suggestion. "'Then I'll send out to Jack's diggins. That express doesn't stop to-night, but I'll find a way, and I'll let you know as soon as I can.' "'You're very kind,' said Jinny gratefully. His confident manner brought her a light-hearted sensation of difficulties already solved. Jack was as good as found, she felt in swift reaction. If he was in any trouble, this forceful young man would settle it. But probably he wasn't in any trouble. Probably he was just at his diggings, rushing off from her in the exasperating way he seemed to do whenever they were getting on particularly well. She remembered how he had bolted from that masquerade which had begun so happily. He had said he was ill, but she had never completely slain the suspicion that his illness sprang from ennui and disinclination. She rose. "'I mustn't take any more of your time, Mr. McLean, and you probably have a 415 engagement.' "'Eh? No, I have not.' Seriously, he assured her, "'You are quite the last one I took on, the last before tea.' He paused, confused, with a strange suggestion. "'Tea. His servant did it rather well, and it was time. Usually he had it in the garden. It was a charming garden, full of roses, with a nice view of the citadel, and his strange suggestion expanded with a rosy vision of Jinny among the roses, beside his wicker table. Would she possibly care to?' He struggled with his idea and with his shyness. And then the sense that it wasn't quite decent, somehow, to be offering tea to this girl, whom anxiety for Ryder's unknown lot had brought to him, overcame that unwanted impulse. He dismissed the idea, and like all shy men he was oddly relieved at the passing of the necessity for initiative, even while he felt his mild hope's expiring pang. He stepped before her to open the doors to which she was now taking herself. In the entrance he saw his clerk, the clever one, going out, and excusing himself he went forward to detain the man. For a moment there ensued a low-toned colloquy. Then the clerk, a dark-brown, keen-featured fellow in European clothes, with a red fez, began to relate something. When McLean turned back to Jinny Jeffries, she saw that his look was sharply altered. There was a transfixed air about him, and when he spoke his voice told her that he had had a shock. "'My man tells me,' he said that Humdi Bay's bride is dead. He buried her yesterday. End of chapter 21Chapter Twenty Two, from the Bazaars. There was a moment's pause. What that lovely girl? Said Jinny in startled pity. 
she added incredulously, yesterday? And only the day before, why, what could have happened? That was what McLean was asking himself very grimly. Aloud he told her slowly, they say that a fire happened, some accident, a candle overturned in her apartments, and of course the windows were screened. Fire! How terrible! That lovely girl! said Jinny again. She was genuinely horrified and pitiful, yet she found a moment to wonder at the evident depths of McLean's consternation, for, of course, he had never seen the girl. Yet he looked utterly upset. "'It's one of the most dreadful things I ever heard of,' Jinny murmured, "'on her wedding night. And she was so young, Mr. McLean, and so exquisite. She didn't look like a real girl. She was a fairy creature. I never dreamed there really were rose-leaf skins before, but hers was just like flower-petals. Jack and I talked about it, I remember. And her face had something so bewitching about it, something so sweet and delicate.' She broke off, revisited with that vision of Amy's sprite-like beauty. How little that poor girl had thought, as she stood there in the bright splendor of her robes and diadem, that in a few hours more— "'Oh, I hope that fire, that it was merciful, that she didn't suffer,' she said almost inaudibly. But speech itself was too definitive of horrors. "'It's tragic,' she finished simply. It was tragic, with a complicated tragedy, thought Andrew McLean as he stood there, his eyes narrowing, his lips compressed, his mind invaded with a dark swarm of conjecture, surmise, suspicion, his vision possessed by a flitting rush of pictures. He saw Jack talking with the girl at the reception, the girl showing him something about her neck, that accursed locket he thought acutely, Jack sending Miss Jeffreys home. Had he arranged that purposely? Was there some mad, improvised scheme of escape in the air? The pictures became more flitting wraiths of conjecture, yet touched with horrifying possibility, Jack lingering, hiding, Jack making love to the girl, attempting flight, Jack discovered, and the quick sabre-thrust for both. A fire? Very likely, to screen the darker tragedy. Hamdi was capable of it to save his pride, and it would dispose so easily of the evidence. McLean's thought flinched from the grim outcome of his fear. He tried to tell himself that he was inventing horrors, that the fire might be the simple truth, that Ryder's talk with the girl might actually have ended in farewell, at least a temporary farewell, and that his consequent low spirits had taken him off to mope in camp. That was undoubtedly the thing to believe, at least until there was actual necessity to disbelieve it, and looking at the story in that way, McLean's Scotch sense of providence was capable of pointing out the stern benefits of the sad visitation. Whatever mischief might have been afoot between his friend and that unfortunate young girl, the fire had prevented, and however hard Jack might take this now, decidedly the poor girl's death was better for him than her life. No more wasting himself now on sad romance and adventure, no more desire and danger, no more lurking about barred gates and secret doors and forbidden palaces, no more clandestine trysts, no more fury of mind beating against the bars of fate. Jack was saved. Even if he had succeeded in rescuing the girl, what then? McLean was skeptical of felicity from such contrasting lives. Better the finality, the sharp pain, the utter separation. And then— His eyes returned to the young American before him. She was the unconscious answer to that future. She would save Ryder from regret and retrospection. In after years, looking back from a happy and well-ordered domesticity, this would all become to him a fantastic, far-off adventure— sad with the remembered but unfelt sadness of youth, 
yet mercifully dim and softened with young beauty. Jack must never tell this girl the story. McLean had read somewhere of the mistakes of too open revelation to women, and now he was very sure of it. She must never receive this hurt, never know that when she had been troubling over Jack's disappearance he had been agonizing over another girl, that the escapade she thought so intimate a lark had been a trick to see the other, that the young creature whose loveliness she so innocently praised had been her rival, drawing Jack from her. McLean would speak clearly to Ryder about this and seal his lips. But first he would have to be found. He became conscious that he had been a long time silent, following these thoughts, while Jinny waited. "'I'll do everything I can to find out about that fire,' he told her. "'I mean, about any discovery of Jack in the palace,' he quickly amended, as her face was touched with instant question. "'And I'll see if anyone in Cairo knows where he is. Then if nothing turns up, I'll just pop out to his diggings in the morning, and make sure he's all right. I'll get back that night and telephone you. And until then, not a word about it. Much better not.' "'Not a word,' Jinny promised. "'And if you should happen to find out anything to-night, I'll let you know at once.' "'Well, rather. But don't count on that. The old boy's out in his tombs, dusting off his mummies. You may get a letter yourself in the morning. he threw out with heartening inspiration. "'And while you're reading it, I'll be tearing along to the infernal desert.' He had brought the smile to her eyes as well as lips. Bright and reassured, and comfortably dependent upon his resourceful strength, she took her leave. But there was no smile remaining upon Andrew McLean's visage. Twenty-four hours— two nights in a day, and the girl was dead and in her grave. Muslims wasted no time before interment. And Jack was where? End of chapter 22THE FORTIETH DOOR BY MARY HASTINGS BRADLEY CHAPTER Twenty Three, IN THE DESERT Clinging to that plunging horse, Ryder made little attempt at first to guide the flight. It was enough to keep himself in the saddle and Amy in his arms, while every galloping moment flung a farther distance between them and that palace of horror. His heart was beating in a wild, triumphant exultation. Glorious to be out under the free sky, the wind in his face, the open world ahead, he felt one with that dashing creature beneath him. And Amy was in his arms, untouched, unhurt, out from the power of that sinister man and the expectation of dread things. The moment was a supreme and glorious emotion. They were headed south, and to Ryder's exhilaration this seemed good. Cairo offered no hiding-place for that fugitive girl. Even the harbour that McLean could give would not be proof against the legal forces of the Turks. Law and order, power and police, were all in the hands of the husband or father. Even now the alarm might be given, the telephones ringing. Amy must be hidden until she could be smuggled to France, or until the French authorities could get out their protective documents. The hiding-place that occurred to Ryder was a wild and desperate expedient. The American hospital at Ciut, the isolation ward, the pretense of contagious illness, and then later travel north in the care of nurses. All this if he could win over one of the doctors. At that moment winning over a doctor appeared a sane and simple thing to Ryder's mind. The only difficulty he recognized was getting Amy into that hospital. But they would not be looking for him in the South. He could manage it, he felt, jubilantly. 
he could smuggle her into his diggings at night, and then make his arrangements. Anything, everything was possible, now that the nightmare of a palace was left behind them. South they went then, at a quieter pace, the Arabs' rhythmic footfalls ringing through the still, grey world of before dawn. Across the Nile they made their way, working out on sandbars to the narrow depths, where Ryder swam beside the swimming horse, while Amy clung to the saddle. Then south again, along the river road. The sky was light now, and the river was light. Only the palms and the villages and the flat Dürer fields were dark, and in the east, behind the Makadam hills, a thin band of gold began to brighten. Life was stirring. Small black boys on huge black buffaloes splashed in the river. Veiled girls with water-jars on their high-held heads, from which the shawls trailed down to the dust, filed past from the villages like a Parthenon frieze. On the high banks the naked Fahaline were already stooping to the incessant dipping of the Shadouf, while from the fields came the plaintive creaking of the well-sweep as some harnessed camel or bullock began its eternal round. A flock of sheep came down the river road, driven by their ragged shepherds, and a string of camels, burdened beyond all semblance to themselves, bobbed by like rhythmic haystacks, led by a black-robed, barefooted child, carrying a live turkey in her arms, while before her rode her father, in shining pongee roads on a white donkey, strung with beads of blue. And by these travellers there passed, in that brightening dawn, two other travellers from the north, a pair on a powerful but tired black horse, a man in a military cloak, and a green and gold turban about his bronzed head, and behind him, on a pillion, a black-mantled, black-veiled girl, with bare, dangling feet. It was Amy who had evolved the disguise, constructing the turban from the negligee beneath her mantle, and it was Amy who bargained with the villagers for their breakfast, eggs and goat's milk, and bread and rice, while her lord, as befitted his dignity, stayed aloof upon his steed, returning a courteous response of Allah Salamak, God bless you, to their greetings. Then, as the day brightened, and the last soft veil of mist was burned away before a blood-red sun, that pair of travellers left the high road, and turned west upon a byway that led past fields of corn and yellow water and mud villages where goats and naked babies and ragged women squatted idly in the dust, and on through low red granite hills swirled about with yellow sand drift and out into the desert beyond. Here fresh vigour came to the Arab horse, and tossing his mane and stretching out his nostrils to the dry air, he broke into a gallop that sent sand and pebbles flying from his hoofs. To right and left the startled desert hares scattered, and from the clumps of spiky helga the black vultures rose in heavy-winged flight. Then the breeze dropped, and the swift-coming heat rushed at them like a furnace breath, and slower and slower they made their way, Ryder leading the jaded horse, and Amy nodding in the saddle, mere crawling specks across the immensity of sand. Then, in the shade of a huge clump of grey-green mitminen beside a jutting boulder, they stopped at last to rest. The horse sank on his knees, Ryder spread out his cloak, and Amy dropped down upon its folds, lost in exhausted sleep, as soon as her head touched the sands. Ryder, his back against the rock, kept watch. It was not the exultant Ryder of that first hour of flight. The excitement of the night had subsided and withdrawn its wild stimulation. It was a hot and tired and immensely sobered young man, who sat there with eyes that burned from lack of sleep, and a brow knit into a taut and anxious line. 
Realization flooded him with the sun. Responsibility burned in upon him with the heat. Alone in the Libyan desert he sat there, and at his feet there slept the young girl whose life he had snapped utterly off from its roots. He was overwhelmingly responsible for her. If she had never met him, if he had never continued to thrust himself upon her, she would have gone on her predestined way, safe, secluded, luxurious, vaguely unhappy and mutinous at times, perhaps, in the secret stirrings of her blood, but still an indulged and wealthy little Moslem. And now she lay there like a sleeping child, the dark tendrils of hair clinging to her moist, sun-flushed cheeks, her long lashes mingling their shadows with the purple underlining of the night's terrors, homeless, exhausted, resourceless, but for that anxious-eyed young man. Desperately he hoped that she would not wake to regret. Even a sardonic tyrant in a palace might be preferable in the merciless daylight to a helpless young man in the Libyan desert. And she was so slight, so delicate, so made for rich and lovely luxury. Looking down at her he felt a lump in his throat, a lump of queer, choking tenderness. He wanted to protect her, to save her, to spend himself for her. He felt for her a reverent wonder, a stirring that was at once protective and possessive, and denying of all self. He would die to save her. He tried to tell himself reassuringly that he had saved her, if only he could keep her safe. He thought of the life before her. He thought of that family in France in whose name he had urged his interference, that unknown Delcasse aunt who had sent out her agents for her lost heirs. Would she welcome and endow this lovely girl? He could not doubt it. Amy's youth and beauty would be treasure-trove to a jaded, lonely woman with money to invest in futures. Amy would be a belle, an heiress. He looked down at her with a sudden darkness in his young eyes. And still she slept, wrapped in the sorry mantle of his masquerade, the torn chiffons of her negligee fluttering over her slim, bare feet. End of chapter 23「Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.